Well, good morning and hallelujah and happy Easter, everyone. My name is Amy and I'm one of the pastors here. And it's such a joy to be with all of you this morning, including lots of faces that I haven't met yet. So I look forward to meeting you sometime this morning. Uh, so this is a little listening test. We just heard this gospel reading from Matthew's gospel. And it begins with Mary Magdalene and it says the other Mary, but that's probably Jesus's mother, going to see the tomb. And then does anyone remember what happens next? You can just call it out. Earthquake, good, good. Uh, this is the only gospel where that happens, so if you were just going off of your memory of the story, you might not have caught that. Excellent. Yes, so there is an earthquake, and because Easter and Holy Week, which we just went through, and the season of Lent are all times when we do sensory things in our worship, in fact, all through Lent, we've been holding these longer and longer silences in our worship. Last Sunday, we sat here for six minutes of silence. This Sunday, we're going to make an earthquake. We're going to sort of do the opposite of that. So let me show you how we're going to do it, okay? I'm going to need everyone's help. So these are my earthquake hands. When they are outstretched and still like this, everything is still and quiet because earthquakes are surprising, so we have to start still and end still, okay? So when my hands are like this, what are we doing? Still, still yes. And then when my hands do this, <laughs> we are going to make an earthquake by stomping our feet. I don't think I can do both of those at the same time, so I'm going to trust you that when you see my hands do this, you stomp your feet, okay? All right. I think we're up for this. We only get one shot, so let's make this the best Easter earthquake this gym has ever seen. Uh, I would invite you to stand. You're also welcome to do it seated, but I think we're really going to get the feel for this if we stand up, okay? All right, so earthquake hands. Great. Thank you. You can have a seat. So, when an earthquake happens, the ground shakes. Things tremble, things fall over, things topple. And so kids who are listening this morning, especially if you just helped make that earthquake, I would invite you to imagine the earthquake at the tomb. You can imagine what was happening in the soil. What was happening to the trees and the rocks? What if there were buildings nearby? What if there were people nearby? And you might want to draw or write or make something out of Play-Doh or pipe cleaners just to imagine that earthquake scene. And for the adults, and for all of us, when the earthquake's foundations crack, Things that weren't built very solidly suddenly show that they weren't built to endure. Pillars crumble, high things topple and are brought low. Everything that's not sound gets brought to the ground in this pile of rubble. And this resurrection earthquake does that. It does that to the people who are standing there. It does that to the governments and the kingdoms of this world. It does that to the powers in the air, and it does it to us. 
The earthquake here isn't to let Jesus out of the tomb. It's already empty. He's already resurrected. The earthquake here is the trembling that's created in the earth when the angel is rolling this stone away so that they can show Mary and Mary that Jesus is resurrected. It's the trembling that precedes an encounter with Jesus, where they see that Jesus, who they saw die, is alive. And encountering this resurrected Jesus is really an earthquake. It is this new reality that topples what we thought we knew. It unsettles us. It disorients us. And it brings high things low. And over the coming weeks, as we go through this Easter season, we will encounter more of the disruption and the unsettledness that this earthquake created in the lives of Jesus' followers. And this morning what we see is the angel tell the women, do not fear, come and see, go and tell. The one who was crucified is not here. He was raised. And you'll notice that the angel, this mouthpiece of heaven, he's not ashamed to call Jesus the one who was crucified. It's interesting, in all of the early commentaries on this gospel, like from the first and second century, everyone highlights that. Like, can you believe that the angel was not ashamed or embarrassed to call Jesus crucified? Because they were still connected to how shameful and humiliating crucifixion was. It's this detail that's kind of lost because our prisoners and criminals and people who are put to death, that happens in different ways. But for them, they knew crucifixion is for the worst criminals. It is for the lowest people, the most despised, the poor, the most humiliating way to die. And so this messenger of heaven doesn't shy away from that. He calls Jesus the crucified one. And this matters because God willingly associates with the lowliness of crucifixion, with the humiliation and the violence and the lowliness of the very worst of the human condition, the worst that people can do and do to one another. And that is what God is doing when he takes on flesh in the person of Jesus. He is stepping into the lowliness of the human condition, and he's moving toward it, not shying away from it. And then when he does that, God puts all sin and evil and death to death. In his own flesh, in his own death on the cross, he topples sin and death and every evil power, and then he rises to new life. He restores the human condition human flesh from the very worst it's capable of to the new kind of life that it was made for, this heavenly life, life in God's kingdom, a life of union with God. And then he opens that life up to everyone who join their lives to his in faith. So when the women see this resurrected Jesus, they go low. They kneel down. They actually grab his feet. They feel that he is really flesh and blood that has been resurrected, and they worship. They become the first worshipers of this risen Jesus, the first to glimpse and grasp hold of and start to understand what this new life is that he has brought forth. 
And for just a moment here, we see the first church, Jesus and these women who are worshiping him. And then they run and tell the disciples, and in the coming week we'll just hear how that all unfolds. We'll hear about more and more of the unsettling and the disorientation. But there's someone else there too besides the women. Does anyone remember who else is in this story? Yeah, yeah, the soldiers, the guards. These are guards that Pilate, the Roman governor, has put into place, so they're agents of the state. They are the keepers of the tomb, and in a more general sense, they are the keepers of order, they are the keepers of the status quo, they enforce the political and governmental powers that be. And when they feel this earthquake and they see this angel and they see the light, the text says they are terrified. They shake and they became like dead men. And they should be, because Jesus' resurrection is unsettling all the kingdoms of the world. They actually have no idea how scared they really should be, because the king of heaven has toppled death, and he's toppled all of its agents of death, all of its regimes, all of its enforcers, all of its gatekeepers, all of the empires and powers of this world. Their days are numbered because the king has risen from the dead and he's opened up his kingdom. I actually had sort of a personal earthquake, a highly localized earthquake in my own heart on Friday. And that's not really language I use a lot, but I couldn't think of a better word here. On Good Friday, we always do this service called Tenebrae, and we light candles, and then one by one, as we listen to John's gospel and the account of Jesus' crucifixion, we extinguish those lights, and then we sit in silence, and we sing without any instruments, and the silences and the darkness grow longer until we are sitting in complete darkness by the end. And there's something about that service every year that just focuses my attention on the words in a different way. And every year I hear things like they are new. Sometimes I actually have to go back and look like, was that in there all along? And sometimes they just hit me new. And this year the phrase that really stood out to me was this one line, we have no king but Caesar. That's what the religious leaders tell Pilate, the Roman governor, when he asks them if they want him to crucify Jesus, who has been called the king of the Jews. And they say, we have no king but Caesar. Now, whether or not they accept Jesus as their king, this is not a good thing to say. Since they are Jewish leaders, religious leaders, a better thing to say might be, God is our king. Or, we obey Caesar, but we worship God, and we're waiting for the king that he has promised he will send us. But they go all in. They say, we have no king but Caesar. Our only ruler, our only authority, the only one we will bow down to is the emperor Caesar, the one who has occupied our land, the one who has oppressed our people, the one who calls himself a god. That is our king. It's a really shocking thing for a religious person to say out loud. And on Friday, those words hit me like an earthquake, and I was shaken because in this moment, I felt like I had no king but Caesar, or really like I had no king but myself. 
I just was struck with how often I live as though it really doesn't matter that Jesus came and lived and taught and died and was resurrected. And this little earthquake in my spirit, it did what the earthquake in Matthew's gospel does. It shook the ground that I was on. It toppled things that held a high place in my heart. And I did the only thing I could do, the same thing the women do. In my spirit, I went low. I grabbed hold of Jesus' feet. I asked for forgiveness. And I received it. Because Jesus is already standing, resurrected, and ready to heal and forgive. Jesus has already defeated every power, every self-righteous or selfish impulse, everything I have ever pledged my allegiance to besides him. He has already toppled. He is already ready to forgive and to heal. The Jesus who died for me in love has opened his life to me. And that resurrected Jesus has this power that those guards at the tomb and the high priests and the Roman governor and all the rulers of this world and all the hard places in our own lives, all of our forgetfulness and our self-centeredness, this power that those powers cannot overcome. It's the power of God loving the world that he made and restoring it to his love. And it's this power that is not afraid to go low. It's not afraid to serve. It's not afraid of being emptied. It's not afraid of being beaten, being bested, being displaced. It's not afraid to die. And so there's nothing that can stand against or topple that power. Nothing can stand against a kingdom built on this self-giving love. Well, today is also the anniversary of the death of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And some of you know that's who I wrote my master's thesis on, not on Bonhoeffer himself, but on a very niche aspect of his theology. So we can talk about that later. <laughs> but Bonhoeffer is someone who, in my mind, had a life that said so clearly, we have no king but Jesus. Bonhoeffer was a German pastor. He was a theologian. And he was living in Germany at the time of the rise of Hitler and the Nazis. And Hitler had promised the German people this other vision of power and glory, this power that came through racial purity, that came through this violent nationalism, that came through war, that came through oppression. And most of the German church embraced this vision. They were like, yes, that is what we want, that power. We have no king but Hitler. And Bonhoeffer watched as more and more of the German church became Nazified, which was actually a word they were using at the time. But Bonhoeffer always resisted this. He always spoke out against this. He was the first to do it. Bonhoeffer always preached Christ crucified. He always preached that the way of God is the way down, the way of loving enemies, the way of lowliness. And he always preached that the kingdom of God transcends racial and ethnic and national lines. And he preached the resurrection, that Jesus was putting to death evil and sin and death, that Jesus was toppling all enemy powers, 
that only his kingdom would endure. And Bonhoeffer eventually participated in a plot to overthrow Hitler's regime. He went through all sorts of interesting ethical and theological reasoning to get there that we'll also set to the side, but we can talk about this at the potluck. But this plot was discovered, and Bonhoeffer was imprisoned for a few years. He was moved between interrogation centers and prisons and concentration camps. He was almost certainly tortured. And on the morning of April 9th, just 78 years ago today, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was stripped and hanged, and he took hold of the resurrection life of Jesus. And a fellow prisoner of his recorded his last words as he was being taken out to the gallows. He said, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. So let's pray. Resurrected Jesus, we pray that you would quake us, that you would unsettle us, that you would show us anything that isn't sound in us, any cracks, that you would topple all our other kings from their high places, that you would make us people who say, we have no king but Jesus. We pray this for ourselves, pray this for our community, and we especially pray this for these three children that we will baptize into your death and resurrection, that they would know you as king and that they would live as citizens of your kingdom, that they would live lives of self-giving love. Amen.